You're listening to Life and Health Matters with Dr. Shakib, and this is your host, Mamak Shakib. In this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Sadigi, who is the Chief of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at Loma Linda University Health. He's been an invited speaker for numerous events around the country and has authored over 40 chapters, four books, and peer-reviewed scientific article. He's been on multiple radio shows and television and has passion and excellence in what he does. Before returning to Loma Linda, Dr. Sadigi lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and received a degree in psychology and molecular biology from UC Berkeley, moved to New York City for medical school. He is a pioneer robotic surgeon and has expertise in management of complications of pelvic surgery and treatment of prolapse by vaginal and robotic approaches. This interview was very enlightening. As a surgeon, he was able to uh, basically draw a good picture of what surgery is like, who is uh, the type of uh, the most common type of uh, patients that Dr. Siddiqui sees. And uh, in general, a surgical uh, approach to a, a dysfunctional pelvic floor is uh, what the subject of this podcast was. I would love for you to send me your questions, comments, and suggestions uh, to show at gmail.com and uh, look for other podcast episodes on pelvic floor dysfunction, which is on the rise. There were certain myths and uh, uh, rumors about uh, uh, pelvic floor dysfunction that uh, I've written a blog about that I will make sure to put in the show notes. Uh, And uh, for those of you who think pelvic floor dysfunction is uh, something for women, I have bad news for you. That is not true. And uh, while Dr. Siddiqui is a female reconstructive surgeon, uh, he agreed that uh, this issue is on the rise and among men and women. Uh, There's a type of incontinence. that is uh, definitely seen, fecal incontinence to be specific, uh, that is seen equally in men and postmenopausal women. So I don't want to scare you into thinking that now you need a surgery, but uh, you have to be aware that at the end of the day, surgery is always the end of the spectrum uh, when someone has to Uh, intervene and uh, do something drastic. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I know I uh, definitely enjoyed uh, Dr. Siddiqui's uh, input, a very personable, brilliant uh, young man, and I uh, hope that uh, you learned something valuable from this interview. Until next time, take care. And so with no further ado, this is the actual podcast. Dr. Sadigi, thank you so much for being here and giving us your time. I know you're super busy being the surgeon that you are. I'm super excited that you are going to give us time so I can get to pick your brain with so many questions. 
from my perspective, Dr. Siddiqui, I am seeing a lot of pelvic floor issues more than ever before. I've been in practice over two decades. And pelvic floor dysfunction at the level I see is definitely on the rise. Do you find uh, being a surgeon, and obviously you're the other end of the spectrum, so when there's nothing else that can be done, uh, people end up uh, seeking your care. And uh, um, do you feel that there's a rise in pelvic floor dysfunction from a surgical point of view? Uh, yeah, first of all, let me let me start by saying, Dr. Shakib, thank you for uh, inviting me on your podcast. And uh, I've never done a podcast, but this is very interesting to me. And I'm, I'm excited to, to do this. But so, to answer your question, uh, yes, pelvic floor dysfunction is on the rise. And mainly because um, the population is uh, growing and we're, we're, we're getting older. Uh, you know, the baby boomers are aging. And this is a usually a disorder of people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s and older. Uh, of course, this can happen in women who are younger as well. But uh, it's definitely on the rise and it's expected to increase by 50% by 2050. So, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, do you think that our lifestyle is also contributing the fact that we're not moving as much and obviously the muscles in our bodies, uh, not basically getting stronger, getting the practice. Do you think that's a contributory factor? Uh, yeah, so the risk factors for these conditions, definitely obesity is a risk factor, uh, and the sedentary lifestyle definitely you know, increases the risk of obesity, and obesity is at a high rate here in the United States. Um, so that is true, and then smoking also can contribute to pelvic floor dysfunction, but I think the number one reason for pelvic floor dysfunction in women, because I, I mainly treat women, is, um, is traumatic childbirth. And that's, that's the number one uh, parity in traumatic childbirth. I would say that was the number one reason. Okay, so that's, that's uh, where people end up with, uh, with uh, obviously, surgical intervention. So what does the surgical in intervention mean in, in these instances? What is it that needs to get fixed? Is it externally? Is it internally? Is it nerves? Is it just muscles and tissue? What exactly... Draw, um, Give us a picture of what that looks like. Yeah, so basically, you you know, you have childbirth. Usually, women have childbirth in their twenties and maybe early thirties, and most childbirth, um, especially transvaginal deliveries, can be traumatic to the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor muscles, the nerves, the ligaments, and so there's a large amount of trauma that occurs to that area. Um, some of some of the um, the trauma that the obstetrician can see, they will fix it. So if they have, if someone has a, a large laceration that goes into their rectum, they'll fix it right away. But some of the trauma that's not caught is the, the occult trauma that occurs to the, the nerves and the muscles deep inside, like the pelvic floor. And so as we age, the, the ligaments and the trauma that's been caused by childbirth is not repaired by the body. And as we age, this uh, area becomes more lax. Um, if there was a tear that occurred um, inside the pelvic floor, which was obviously not caught by the obstetrician because it's deep inside, those things uh, get worse over time. And by age, you know, the average age of 
of women that I see is about 55. So by age 55, women will, will manifest signs of pelvic floor dysfunction. So most people know urinary incontinence as, as a big one. Uh, I deal with pelvic organ prolapse, which is the, uh, the, the dropping or the falling of the pelvic organs uh, through the vaginal uh, canal. Um, and then there's other, what's that? <laughs> oh ouch, yeah. I said, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of, uh, some, pel- you know, severe pelvic organ prolapse al- can almost look like there's a baby coming out of someone's vagina at age, fi- you know, 55 or 60, uh, a big, uh, grapefruit sized protrusion coming out of the vagina. I mean, that's what the severe version of prolapse looks like. Um, and then, you know, I mean, there's, there's no pelvic floor exercise. There's no maneuver or anything that you can do to put that back to its normal place. And that's when you, are, you need surgery. You need a surgeon to, to fix that uh, connective tissue, possibly reinforce it with some materials um, and attach it to where it used to be attached. So that's so what... Like, a, with a, like with a round ligament? Or is the round ligament basically like <laughs> not holding the uterus up? Or is uh, it yeah. just the weight is just too overwhelming for it to handle? Yeah, so, so the uterus has multiple uh, support systems. The round ligament is probably the weakest one. It's not very strong. The strongest one is the uterosacral ligament. And that's, I would say, the number one support. And so the uterosacral ligament is either stretched and broken. And it's not able to hold uh, the uterus anymore. So if... If there's a problem, and we call that level one support defect. So if there's a problem with the uterosacral ligament, you can have um, prolapse of your uterus through your vagina and possibly outside the vagina. And oh, my gosh. That's a very... So, yeah, I'm sorry. There was a, there was a disconnect there. Um, that's quite severe. So I assume this is over time. It's not like all of a sudden it just comes out. So it's a gradual... Uh, prolapse of tissue until yeah. it becomes fully or semi-fully um, out of the vaginal area? Is that, yeah, is that correct. correct? Yeah, you're correct, Dr. Shakib. Uh, it, it, it's something that happens over time, and it doesn't just happen overnight. It just is developed slowly. Gravity is not your friend in this situation, and getting older is not your friend when it comes right. to But, yeah, it happens over time. So what are some of the things that are, I mean, that's a severe case. So you basically have to reconstruct the whole area to accommodate the prolapsed uh, organs. But what are some of the things that are done before a, a patient is, um, becomes a surgical candidate? I mean, I know that there are biofeedback, there is uh, there are external devices that are used uh, that are inserted inside and you know the um, um, the other thing that um, I'm curious about is in my practice I see an increase which this is mind-boggling to me like I said over two decades of practice I've never seen so many men with pelvic floor dysfunction Mm -hmm. now at my level incontinence is not what I treat it just happens to be if, if you have incontinence, more than likely it's a pelvic floor dysfunction, not necessarily because of nerve damage, obviously, or nerve, inter- nerve irritation to, uh, to the bladder, as an example. But um, 
I'm seeing an increase in UTI in urinary tract infection for the uh, listeners uh, in male patients and a rise in incontinence as well as uh, uh, other, other signs and symptoms at my level when it comes to pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, do you see patients who are male or who do they see for any issues? Obviously, prostate enlargement is a contributory factor. But other than the obvious, which is, okay, prostate's enlarged, what can they do if, uh, if who do they need to go see or do they? Right. No, I, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction is on the rise for men as well and um, is on the rise for men as well. You want me to pause? No. Okay. So yeah, pelvic floor dysfunction is on the rise for men as well. But I, as I said, I, that's not my specialty. I, yeah, for a man who has uh, problems in the pelvic floor, usually it has to do with uh, the prostate or the testicle, uh, that kind of thing. And, and men can also have pelvic, pelvic floor dysfunction as well. Um, they usually have to go to their urologist. And mm-hmm. um, there is a uh, type of urologist that specializes in men's uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. It's highly specialized. Um, what are they called? They're just urologists, and they've done a little bit of additional training. So if you call, you know, for example, if you call our office here, not mine, let's say you call our medical center and you ask for a urologist who deals with pelvic floor dysfunction in men, they will send you to a urologist who has more, a little bit more specialized training in that area and who is interested. It's not as official uh, of a specialty as mine because there is a lot, there's a, there's more pelvic floor dysfunction in women, uh, mainly right. because of childbirth. So they don't have a, there's no name for their, for, for the men's specialist. But, I see. but I think, uh, you know, I think you were alluding when you were asking me a question, the different types of pelvic floor dysfunction uh, that I treat uh, are like, like I said, pelvic organ prolapse. You were talking about urinary incontinence, um, recurrent urinary tract infection is what you mm-hmm. were saying, which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, pain with intercourse. Uh, there's a condition called bladder pain syndrome or interstitial cystitis. Um, and then there's some complex uh, situations that I deal with. Uh, for example, like difficult pelvic surgeries or as a consult to other surgeons when they have difficult issues or treatment of complications of other surgeons, that kind of thing. Um, I do some of that as well. You know, one of the things that um, I've started noticing is the number of issues in younger generation, people in their 20s, uh, in their 20s, early 30s, both men and women, a lot of testicle issues, a lot of uh, uh, female organ issues I'm seeing. And so surgeries are done. And a lot of times from that perspective, even though, you know, it's external surgeries to, let's say, remove a testicle, but the actual surgery, obviously, the surgeon needs to be accommodated to do the surgery, but prolong, um, uh, let's say, positioning of the uh, of the lower extremity to open up the area for the surgeon to do his job, that definitely weakens a lot of musculature contributing, not just in the pelvic itself, in the pelvic inlet or girdle itself, but let's say in the hip joint. And then that becomes the settling 
not the settling, but the causing factor for pelvic mm-hmm. floor issues. So from my perspective, I see a lot of that happening. Probably by the time people come to you, there's so much damage that that's done. It's like, just fix me. I, mean, I need this stuff outside and maybe push on the inside. But do you, um, as a surgeon, talk to um, other levels of doctors that are involved with pelvic floor dysfunction to kind of figure out or maybe brainstorm ideas as to why it's happening? Does that actually happen or is it more of a, well, that's not my specialty, so I'm going to focus on what I have to do? Is there any collaboration at that level? Um, Because once again, I'm sure you know that people want to avoid surgery as best as they can. It's scary. It's scary to go see a surgeon. Yeah. Yeah, even, it, it, even as for me as a surgeon, it's scary to go to a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we want to avoid that yeah. as much as possible. So from my perspective, I'm all about, my gosh, I want to catch this problem before it becomes a huge problem where I have to have surgery done. Yeah. Um, what, does that happen yeah. or is that like a dream in my head that I wish was happening? <laughs> well, I, I, so for, in my specialty... Uh, when I was training, I was, after I had finished my residency training and I did my fellowship for three years, I had to work with, uh, multiple specialties to, you know, gain expertise in my field. So I worked with colorectal surgeons. I worked with urologists. I worked with gynecologists. I worked with geriatricians because some of our patients are older. I worked with plastic surgeons. I worked with, uh, pelvic physical therapists. So all of those things, you know, I'm not an expert in every single one of those, but as a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon, I have knowledge in those areas. So when a patient comes to see me, uh, especially for for chronic pelvic pain, that's a very difficult issue uh, for patients as well as for doctors because it's not easy to fix. Um, I always involve other other doctors. So it's a multidisciplinary approach, and that's what we say. Um, And... I don't know if we necessarily find why that happened. Why did this person develop pelvic, uh, pelvic pain? We try to, but it's really difficult to find the inciting incident or wh- why, how did this begin? It's very difficult. Yeah. You're probably better at doing that than we are. But we, are, we, we, we deal with, okay, what do we need to do? What kind of specialist could help this person? Um, and there is no magic bullet. We have to try different things for pelvic pain, for example. Um, you know, often patients come into our office and they have folders and folders of all the physicians they've seen. Sometimes they haven't seen the right physician. Um, but we, we try to hook them up with the right people and have them try different therapies to, to see what helps best with their pelvic floor. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you can tell, oh yeah, this patient definitely has bladder pain syndrome and that's really my specialty. And, uh, you know, I, I need to do my therapies, but a lot of times by the time they see me, they've, they've had this issue for so long. Now their, their pelvic floor is involved. They've got, you know, uh, myalgia in their pelvic floor and I'm sure their ligaments and bones, uh, that's your specialty are also affected and their nerves. So it's not, e- it's a, not an easy thing. And I definitely try to involve other types of practitioners. Um, I was just, uh, 
The other day I was writing a blog on pelvic floor dysfunction and I was like, this is freaking 5,000 words and I'm not even done. And this, <laughs> this is such an intense subject because my, my whole um, thought is I want to prevent this to the best of our ability. So what are some of the things that in general public needs to become aware of that, okay, I did this, so I should make sure that this thing doesn't happen. For example, if yeah. you're skiing and you get injured, you definitely are, your public floor is compromised. I mean, that right. really is. So now you're in your early 20s and now you give birth and, uh, you know, you didn't start to well to begin with. Well, you're bound to have complications later on and hopefully not, but end up with surgery. Um, do you think that these medical devices that get inserted into uh, the pelvic girdle uh, um, or, I mean, in males cases, it can't go that far up, I guess. It's just the penal shaft. Do you think that um, they work? Some of them do. So you're, you know, you're going back to your, the question you had before this question is, is, are there things that you can do to prevent this? Um, and the answer is, you know, to some extent. Yeah. So, you know, like I, you know, the top three risk factors for these conditions, we said was obesity, smoking, and uh, traumatic uh, vaginal delivery. Well, obesity is easy. <laughs> Lose right. weight, you know. I mean, yeah, it's easy to say, but it's difficult to do, obviously. Right. Uh, smoking cessation. If you're smoking, don't smoke. Now, the vaginal childbirth, that's uh, traumatic childbirth is a difficult one because, you know, how can you, how can you prevent having trauma during childbirth? And some people suggest you should do like an, uh, an elective C-section, which is also very controversial to do something like that. Um, to do a C-section before you go into labor, you know, some people have done that, but I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a discussion you'll have to have with your obstetrician, but, um, you know, your, the, the things that they do in obstetrics is to make sure during your pregnancy that you, you, your baby doesn't gain too much weight. Mm -hmm. so that's something that you can, if your baby is really large and you're having vaginal birth, you're going to have more trauma. Right. It's just a matter of size, right? Cephala pelvic disproportion. Um, and also uh, just, you know, just making sure that you do your normal routine prenatals and you, you go to your visits regularly and then you see your doctor. Sometimes, I mean, I, this is, it's been a long time. I, I used to deliver babies like 14 years ago. I used to do some obstetrics and I would see, uh, women who had very poor prenatal care and they would just come in in labor and you know they're they're already getting pelvic floor trauma and the baby's head's been down there for hours and obviously that's going to cause a lot of trauma in that area um also i would say the use of forceps sometimes um obstetricians would need to use like a forceps or a vacuum to pull the baby out because the baby's kind of stuck um forceps has been uh, associated with pelvic floor trauma. And so I would say make sure that if you're going to have uh, vaginal childbirth to tell your obstetrician to not use forceps. Uh, you know, one thing that I always, uh, I always thought, and um, I have two children uh, that I did without any 
epidural and it was a vaginal birth. I feel that um, pregnancy and childbirth is like marathon. You can't expect to do well if you don't do uh, your due diligence before the actual race. So I think a lot of times, and now with that put aside, just like with any muscles, uh, you need to condition the muscle. The muscle needs the muscle. The performing muscle has to be in top shape. Um, otherwise, you're going to pull that muscle. So, in essence, if if yep. things are not being done properly, and I feel that unless people are seeking that advice, the general advice is not really. Um, with pelvic floor dysfunction in mind necessarily because it's more like the baby's doing good, you're doing good, okay, I'll see you in a month or something like that. But I think um, as as um, mothers-to-be, I think it's important to condition um, um, the area to keep it in top shape. And there are so many different things we can do preventatively so we can perform better at the so-called race this metaphoric race even though it's not, it does yeah. seem like a race at times for some people no that's that's totally correct like if you look at the scientific evidence and uh some cochrane reviews and this is scientific evidence that pelvic floor muscle uh therapy and and kegels we 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 often use the term kegels but people a lot of people don't know what they are exactly or they don't do them correctly uh, but kegels or pelvic floor muscle training is is important. And if you do that prior to getting pregnant and during pregnancy, you know, you're, you have a lower chance of developing urinary problems and lower chance of developing prolapse, especially urinary Yeah, problems. definitely. Uh, I was, uh, when you were talking about bladder pain syndrome, I'm assuming um, the structure of the ureter, ureter and urethra, just the connection to the bladder in and out, um, and the prolapse of that can lead to a lot of issues, UTI uh, increase in, in incident, things like that. Is, that. is that pretty accurate? What causes this bladder pain syndrome? Yeah. You know, nobody really understands um, what causes bladder. There's five, six different theories, um, but one of the prevalent theories is that maybe there was a a recurrent urinary tract infection that occurred that damaged the uh, bladder mucosa and the nerves. And then now the bladder is deficient of a lining, kind of like the kind of lining you have in your stomach, like the bladder is missing a lining. And now even when they have urine come through into the bladder, that oh, irritates the it's nerves. It's kind of like the intestine, yeah. just because there's no pain receptors mm -hmm. in the inside of the intestine. The only reason we feel it is because that lining is uh, so much thinner that the nociceptors, the pain receptors on the outer part becomes uh, stimulated. That's fascinating. So UTI is, people should not take UTI um, uh, lightly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> the, when surgery is done, what is the after treatment for these women? Do they do, are they kind of like doomed for life, or is there is there what's the success rate? Other than putting the organs back in and making sure it doesn't come out, yeah. what's the lifestyle like afterwards? It feels like in yeah. trying to imagine 
I feel like it's so painful down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it really it depends on what uh, disorder was treated. So uh, like the top two things I do are, are treatment of uh, pelvic prolapse and stress incontinence. Mm-hmm. Stress incontinence is if you, if you uh, cough, sneeze, laugh, get up, you have leakage that happens with activity. And so those, the, the success rate is very high for those. And it's, uh, for example, just stress incontinence. If you just have stress incontinence, the surgery is about 20 minutes long. It's like highly successful, 90 to 95% success. And that lasts up to 10 years. Uh, and some people more, you know, everybody's different. Uh, for prolapse, it's a little bit lower. Um, this, again, the, the, depending on what surgery was done, there's, there's a gold standard surgery called a, a sacrocopalpexy. So if that's done, that's a very strong, durable surgery with a 93% success rate over almost 10 to 15 uh-huh. years. So they're successful. Uh, they do work. It is, you know, it's, it, it's a myth that people sometimes go to their primary care doctors and they say, oh, no, this doesn't work or, or don't you, there's nothing that can be done. That's not true. There, there are things that can I'm be sure done. I'm the, sure the, the, problem the, is the that, skills of the surgeon play a huge role, too. Yeah. <laughs> maybe That's maybe main, maybe uh, you're just an amazing surgeon so your success rate is high uh, and I, it's not maybe i know you are uh, but um, i'm oh. i'm sure that um just i mean it's so important to go to the right surgeon obviously yeah i think a lot of even even people who are who are doctors who are mds don't necessarily know about the specialty Mo, you know gynecologists do for sure but some pra- fa- uh, family practice uh, doctors, internal medicine doctors, they, and those are your primary care doctors, may not know that this specialty area exists. Uh, and so they, sometimes people are routed through, through their OBGYN or urologist to get to us. But if, you have tra- if, if your doctor has training and experience in this area, that's definitely a big plus in terms of how effective the treatments are going to be. Yeah. Because that's what they do. That they, that they do that all day long. This isn't something they do like once a month. They do it all the time. Uh, absolutely, yes. So I was just shocked that, um, um, and to me, being 50, 55 and having this type of surgery is quite traumatic, you know. <laughs> um, what's the recovery rate after surgery? Yeah. So surgery, you know, so, you know, surgery is definitely trauma because you have to get cut. So that itself is trauma. But if you look at what we used to do 15, 20 years ago, we used to have to cut people open. I mean, big incision, we're talking about 10, 12 inches. Now, pretty much every surgery that I do is minimally invasive. So there's very little trauma. Um, We'll, we'll make little tiny incisions on your belly and we'll put our instruments and I do something called robotic surgery where we attach the instruments to a robot and then I move these small little hands inside you to do the surgery. And there's very little trauma, very little bleeding. These patients, a lot of them can go home a few hours after the, this big surgery. Oh my God. Or they can go home, you know, uh, after one night in the hospital. So the trauma that you, that you know, there used to be is not there anymore because of the way we are doing these surgeries. But most people, uh, depending on the surgery, if they're having stress incontinence surgery, it, it just takes a few days to recover. If they're having prolapse surgery, usually about four to six weeks for recovery. And in, in, in those four to six weeks, you're not, 
you're not laid up in bed. You're, you're actually walking around, you're doing things. Um, you may have to take a little bit of pain medication. You may have to stay close to the bathroom if you've got uh, some inflammation in your bladder or something so that you're able to go to the bathroom. You may get constipated or something. But pretty much the recovery is not bad after these minimally invasive That's surgeries. That's impressive. How about fecal incontinence? Who gets fecal incontinence? Fecal incontinence, again, I'll, you know, women and men can get fecal incontinence, and I deal with women uh, only. Uh, but I would say one out of six of my patients who have urinary incontinence also have fecal incontinence, and they're too embarrassed to admit it. It's just something that's not talked about uh, that much. And it has the same pathophysiology as urinary incontinence. It, it happened because of uh, traumatic childbirth, especially if uh, – you delivered a baby and you had a fourth degree laceration. That means that there was a tear uh, because of the baby all the way through the vagina, through the anal sphincter, into the rectum after you delivered the baby. So patients who have that are at higher risk for for problems with fecal incontinence and uh, posterior pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, I'm sure the recovery, oh my gosh, that's just like the whole inside is torn into... The whole thing's torn. Man, uh, that's that's unbelievable. So, so that's with women. What causes men? I mean, that's quite quite intense. Uh, what happens? Mm-hmm. Is it is it mostly seen or seen with people with hemorrhoids? I mean, what's why would anyone? Yeah. yeah? Why would men get it? Yeah. So, um, women and men, the rate of fecal incontinence after menopause is. Uh, very equal in men and women, but women get more fecal incontinence and pelvic floor dysfunction before that age or when they're younger because of childbirth. But with men, um, you know, one, I would say the number one risk factor is uh, any kind of rectal surgery, like, like you said, hemorrhoids. So they're getting your hemorrhoids done and there's a device they have to use in order to have visualization and that device itself can cause trauma. So any kind of rectal surgery can be a risk factors. And then just the aging process itself, because men and women have almost an equal rate of fecal incontinence after a certain age, and then it goes up with age. So the aging process itself is a risk for fecal incontinence. I see. Now, from my perspective, uh, we're all breathing just minimally to live, but we, we almost no one breathes. Well, at least I never have seen it. Uh, breathes biologically, like um, the way we're, when we're born, we breathe. So all of that definitely leads to a pelvic floor weakness. And um, so I would think that becomes even more essential for people to preventatively to learn how to do their breathing just to condition the pelvic inlet, the muscles inside the pelvis. Now, these are some, uh, Dr. Siddiqui, um, that these are probably the things that um, you're thinking, oh, geez, you know? <laughs> you're the surgeon and I'm the opposite. <laughs> but, but what do you think when, when you hear me say that? Is that like, wow, how much drugs did you do in college type of mindset that comes to you? Or is it more like, oh, that's oh. a good one? No, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm very open-minded. So just because... You know, I don't deal with certain things doesn't mean that those things are not important or 
you know, there's a lot of, for example, there's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence about the different plants and stuff in Amazon, right, and in South America that have later been found to have uh, amazing therapeutic benefits, and we didn't know that. Are you talking about There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff, but but no, I think I think you know I don't deal with posture, movement, bones breathing and and core muscles those are all involved in uh, they're all connected to the pelvic floor so i i think that is important I, I mean i wouldn't know how to advise someone to do that so if i have a patient who who has questions about that i'll send it to you <laughs> <laughs> no but but i i appreciate it that you know we all we can't know everything all the time it's a matter of knowing that but not giving up on uh on learning more and I'm not directing this to you I mean you're you're uh, god when it comes to surgery uh, I'm just since everyone else is listening to this I just really think it's important for us to never give up on learning more about what's out there and how we feel about it and more importantly what are we doing what are the action steps to prevent us from uh getting to whatever it is, like in this case, surgery. But I appreciate uh, your open-mindedness. I appreciate you explaining all of this to us because it's, it's crazy. The level of interruption in our tissues and in our health is just crazy and so, so fascinating and so rewarding to know that, you know, there are options there and we are working on improving uh, and the surgical tools, and obviously the surgeons uh, are being trained using them. Uh, I had no idea you did uh, robotic surgery too. Um, is that fairly common, or is that a, only the only way these days? Or there there are still surgeons who don't use uh, uh, robotic devices. Yeah. So, yeah, there are surgeons that still don't use the robotic devices. Um, actually, the robot came out, I don't know, 30 years ago. There was a military thing because the military wanted to have, uh, you know, they didn't want their doctors to be in the battlefield. So they would they wanted this uh, situation where the surgeon could be in a safe place in a different city and have the technicians set this robot up over the patient, over the wounded soldier and then have the doctor in a different city control the robot to do the surgery. That was the whole idea for this. And that didn't really catch on because um, there, was a, there was a lag in the time. So there was, when the surgeon moved his arms in the, in the city, like the safe city, the robot would move like a, a second or two later, which is, that's too much of a lag time when you're doing surgery. So that was dangerous. But that didn't catch on. But then later on, the robot came into, you know, came into use for, for medical reasons in the operating room, in the same room as the surgeon. So, uh, and there is no lag time when, when you're in the same, when the robot's in the same room as the surgeon and the surgeon is operating uh, the controls, there's zero lag time. And so robotic surgery sort of caught on, I would say, about 10 years ago. Is this ago. Da Vinci? Uh, da Vinci, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So basically, it's like I would say it's one step a little bit higher than laparoscopic surgery. Laparoscopic surgery is when you make little incisions and then you insert the instruments. But the instruments, 
you you move them yourself, but the instruments, it's almost like using chopsticks versus using a spoon and a fork. That's how I like to think. <laughs> for, for, someone, for someone who doesn't know how to use chopsticks, I shouldn't say that because there's some people who are really good with chopsticks. <laughs> that would but be me. That, that, <laughs> yeah, I know how to use chopsticks too. But, you know, that if, if, if you don't know how to use chopsticks, it's really hard to, to do things with chopsticks. And it's not as accurate and it's not as precise. You can't, you can't do it as well. With the advent of robotic surgery, now we're still using those small holes that were laparoscopic. We're inserting the instruments, but these instruments hook onto a robot. And then the surgeon goes and sits in the corner of the room and puts their head inside the console. It's, like a, it's almost like you're in a spaceship or something. And when the surgeon puts their head down, you are now inside the human body because there's a camera inside the That's body. It's a three-dimensional fascinating. View. <laughs> yeah, it's three-dimensional. So like... I can like turn, I can see a blood vessel. I mean, it is just accurate. It is precise. It's highly magnified. And yeah, I've been doing robotic surgery for about eight years now. And um, I didn't do it when I came out of fellowship, but uh, at Loma Linda, uh, we have a lot of surgeons who are um, robotically trained. So we've really developed a program here. Um, So like west of the Mississippi, Loma Linda is like one of the top places for uh, robotic surgery. So, yeah, we've, we've really developed that program, and um, I would say I do about 70% of my surgeries robotically. Wow. The other 30%, um, I do it transvaginally, so through the vagina. Um, and either way is minimally invasive, but it's just a different technique of, of doing things and different access to the areas that you need to get to. So why would this not become a common protocol for all surgeons that do similar type of surgery to do mm-hmm. it, why would why would uh, why would that not be provided to all patients when that's an option available? Well, number one is your surgeon may not be trained to do it, so that's number one. Um, because most hospitals, I would say the not every hospital, majority of hospitals have a Da Vinci, and like our hospital has like eight Da Vinci's. So, but um, I think that eventually all hospitals will get a Da Vinci. So there are some hospitals that don't have one. There are surgeons who are not trained. Um, in terms of long term, currently it is expensive, so it's a it's a cost to healthcare because uh, Intuitive Surgical, which is the company that makes um, Da Vinci, is pretty much a monopoly. I mean, they're the only ones in the country who have this device, and they can do whatever they want. They can charge whatever they want, and eventually, you know, when there is competition, the price will go down. But right now, it's expensive. To have this so for those people who have insurance, it's worth traveling to go to places like Loma Linda to get this surgery done because in long term, they are better off with uh, minimal invasion, uh, essentially, I mean, complications that can happen after surgery. Uh, what percentage yeah. of the patients you see are from other states or faraway places? So because I'm a sub-sub-specialist, I like 99% of the patients I see are referrals from other places. Um, I would say, you know, I have, I get one or two patients outside the country every year. Um, definitely maybe a handful from different states. Um, from uh, We get people from Las Vegas, from Nevada, from Arizona, lots of people from Central California, um, I even have some people who skip LA and they'll come over, um, you know, who live in Palos Verdes and those areas. Um, 
to come here just for the robotic surgery. Um, but I, I think that, you know, if people do their due diligence and they do their research, you can find someone in your city that does robotic surgery. So what are some of the uh, things for people to look for to find a good surgeon? Obviously, mm-hmm. word of mouth, is nothing can top that. But what else uh, can they do? So... First, you have to uh, know what specialty your whatever you want treated is. So, if you want, you know, I'm going to give an example. If you're, you're if you're going to get a, a nose job or rhinoplasty, you know that you need to go to a plastic surgeon. But you have to find what specialty it is that you are, are going to need. You have to make sure that the doctor is board certified in that specialty. Uh, you have to make sure that a uh, person is appropriately trained, so they have the certificates like the. For example, for my field, it's very important to have fellowship training. I've had three years of additional training after my my four-year residency. So those are just the basics. But then after that, you want to find someone who has been doing this for a while, so they're experienced. They they didn't just graduate like last year. And they're high volume. High volume means they do a lot of surgeries every week. So ask them, how many surgeries, how many of this type of surgery do you do every week? And how long have you been doing this for? And then the last thing I would do is, is go to the hospital where they operate and talk to some of the nurses and anesthesiologists because those people take care of their patients. So, you know, if it's someone who, ha- who has a lot of problems and complications, you will, you will get some interesting information. Um, but, like, you know, like I, have, I trust that anyone who talks to any of the nurses that work with me or the anesthesiologists who put my patients to sleep, they'll tell you, you know, that, yeah, this guy's good. This guy's really solid. So I think that that goes a long way. Um, patients, word of mouth not, is not necessarily the best thing because patients, you know, don't necessarily know how good someone is. Maybe they've had a good experience and then they think, oh, yeah, this is good. And so patients are not necessarily. And the other thing is a per, the doctor's website is not a good source because obvious, especially if it's private practice, the doctor is going to put, of course, they're going to put anecdotes and they're going to put their their most successful cases on their website, right? So you want a doctor who who's always, almost always successful and almost always good. Correct. I mean, um, when it comes to surgery, yeah. it could be a matter of life and death. Um, and um, when it comes to surgery specifically, I think the skills uh, should top the personality of the doctor. <laughs> You happen to be yeah. very charming, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but there are quite a few surgeons out there that are just um, not that way. And the other thing is that I think people in general are afraid, especially if they've gone through so much before surgery, they're just afraid to speak up or ask questions. Yeah, That is definitely the case. Not that you're scary, but surgeons are scary to people. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, bedside manner, obviously, they don't have, to, you know, bedside manner, meaning like if they are cordial, they're professional, and they, they can uh, talk to you in a way that you feel comfortable. Not all surgeons have great bedside manner, and they may be, some of them are very good technicians, but you have to make sure your surgeon is able to communicate with you very well and explain things to you well. Even if they don't have a great personality, you know, obviously it's a bonus if they have all of that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's so true. Well, Dr. Sadigi, 
Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy surgeon. I, I appreciate the time you've given me. I would love to uh, uh, witness some of the surgery you've done. Hey, can I shadow you in a surgery room? Or is that like HIPAA thing or whatever? Is that even an option? Well, actually, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. In in the past, uh, in the past, it was no not a problem. You you would you would go and become a, a volunteer at the hospital, mm -hmm. and then when you became a volunteer, you would say, "Yeah, I want to volunteer in the operating room." And I've had people who are in college who want to be doctors, and they they will do that. They used to do that. Now with COVID, oh my God! Mm -hmm. Now with COVID, I don't know. I don't even know if even professional observation is going to be something in the future. Like it's just, I don't know if that's ever going to happen oh, again. Oh wow! Honestly, it's even, I mean, we, I used to have people from other countries come to watch me do robotic surgery. And I had someone who recently wanted to come and my hospital wouldn't let them. And I think, I think that's how it's going to be in the future because of COVID. I think things have really, really been affected. Wow. That's, well, that, that's good to know, but thank you so much for your time. This was so insightful uh, and I appreciate everything you've done uh, for my listeners. I hope that uh, you found this uh, episode um, definitely uh, worthy of your time and you learned valuable information from it. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email me to drspodcastshow at gmail.com. I will put Dr. Siddiqui's uh, information in the show notes. And once again, Dr. Siddiqui, thank you for your time and my listeners. Until thank next time, take care.